quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. I was just given bad advice, basically. And when I realized that it was actually still going to be better for me to separate out, again, like you said, having tenants be able to pay their own heating and cooling radically improves your operating margins, NOI. That's a huge boost. So even if it hurts to do that, it's often worth it. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Slocum Reed, and today we are joined by Dave Holman. Dave is joining us from Maine, just north of Portland, Maine. His company is Holman Homes. They organize green building syndications, historic renovations, and refugee housing in Maine. He's a real estate developer, a real estate agent team leader, and a property manager. Current portfolio consists of 370 units for $40 million in assets under management between current holdings and current development projects. Dave, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're currently focused on? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me here. Excited to share any advice and all the mistakes I've made so that your listeners can avoid a few of those and do better their own real estate investing. So I grew up in Maine, a middle-class background, never knew anything about real estate investing. We just owned one house growing up. And in college, I started learning about green building and architecture, energy, renewable energy, how it relates to the built environment, which accounts for about 40% of the carbon emissions that we generate as a society. So it's huge. It's the biggest single contributor to global warming, and yet so many people never think about it in those terms. And that got my wheels spinning. And I went down to Bolivia for the next four years, like everyone does, started a chain of retail stores down there, kind of typical next step in life. Met a young woman who I got engaged with. We're now married with two kids up here in Maine. I came back to the US, got my MBA, realized I just needed to learn accounting, basically, and went right into the lucrative realm of nonprofit communications development on fundraising. I did that for about nine years, but I started as a passive investor in a friend from college, his syndication. We had done the same green building class at Carleton College, and that got me interested in it as a neat area that I'd like to check out later in life. And lo and behold, I decided to start small. I invested in a single family house with family who had some retirement money that in excess of what they needed. I did all the work, they put in the capital, and that's how I got started. And I've done over 20 different deals. I'm a buy and hold investor by and large. And I've done some of the smallest syndications on the planet and I'm now getting bigger and bigger. We're doing an $18 million, 63 unit apartment building. That'll be really exciting, very renewable, sustainable materials and that sort of thing. So that's where I've come to. And I'm a syndicator that does asset management, but I also have a team of agents, both residential and commercial, doing brokerage and a property management company with 12 employees. Nice. Dave, I don't know if you're a frequent listener of the podcast or not, but when did you graduate from college? 2006. And I am a frequent listener. Okay. I graduated in 09. My then girlfriend, now wife, and I moved to Ecuador. 
when oh, we wow. got back from Ecuador, I was a full-time professional youth minister before I got into real estate by buying a house hack and then becoming an agent. So yeah, not everyone goes to Bolivia to start a strip mall business, but some of us do <laughs> end up in yep. South America after college and speaking fluent Spanish. I imagine yours is pretty good at this point. Excelente. Podemos seguir en español. <laughs> Now, we'll, yeah, we'll for the three other people who are listening who also speak Spanish. Yeah, we'll record the next Yeah, for the sake of the listeners, the vast majority of listeners at least. So green construction, historic renovations, and refugee housing. I want to ask about each of those things. You brought up the green construction already. Yeah. Building with LEED certification and building more eco-friendly real estate is inherently more expensive than just building what it takes to meet code requirements. Where are you finding the profitability in going green? Great question. And I want to pick something apart there because what you mentioned, going green is way cheaper than doing things the normal way. However, lead certification is a useless waste of money, in my opinion. It's a marketing gimmick where you say, all right, we're going to pay an extra hundred grand to architects and engineers to prove that we did it green so that we can market to people that we are green. What we do is, no, we're just going to do the right things, but we're not going to pay the extra money for certification because we can still market and say, hey, we're using VRF heat pump systems to heat this building instead of natural gas. We're doing that because it was actually cost competitive with natural gas. And on the ownership side, which is the side you always want to be in in real estate, in my opinion, the long-term ownership, that means it's a lower operating cost. That means we're going to have a higher NOI, net operating income. And that translates to a more valuable building at the end of the day. And every time that fuel prices go up, we can smile because our costs can go down and they're actually our rates in Maine are going down 35% this year. So it's a kind of strange dynamic, but you're absolutely right. There's certifications like passive house certification, lead certification, they're expensive and they're a great fit for museum and higher education projects, big skyscrapers that have plenty of budget to comply with those requirements. But in most cases, I don't think that is worthwhile. And we didn't for our project. We'd much rather do some things that'll enhance the performance of the building. And you might pay, let's say, 5% more upfront or even 10% more upfront. But if you're saving 5 or 10% a year in fuel costs, or in some cases, 30 or 40% a year, if you plan to own the building for multiple years, that can very quickly translate into profits. Dave, I'm not as familiar with your world as you are, of course, but I want to give a counter argument. And I will say I'm based in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'm sure that local and regional regulation, political policy play into this. But I feel like the answer to, first of all, why things like lead certification is so expensive, but also why it is a justified expense in many cases it's the cases in which the increased expense of the certification is balanced out by reduced property tax expenses because of incentives coming from your city or county or other municipal authority that governs both new construction and property taxes. 
I'm in Ohio, you're in Maine. Is there anything like that? Is that a calculation that you were making when deciding not to go with the certification? Yeah, it's a great question. We don't have any incentives in terms of property tax, state, local, or otherwise. I mean, the IRA Act on a national level has some really great energy efficiency rebates, incentives. That could be a whole other show on the implications of that legislation. You're now getting tax credits on heat pumps and related installation costs, just like you would with solar, which is huge. It's hard to get tax credits in, in this world. So that's a separate matter. The reason we're not going for certification is simply because A, you have to make hard choices. We wanted to do our water heat with a commercial heat pump system. Those are not very common. There's very few installers in this state that have worked with them. And unfortunately, that material cost was going to be an extra $100,000 to the project. Water heat's pretty inexpensive with natural gas. We don't use that much of it. We're using low flow appliances throughout the board. It just didn't pencil. So I don't mean to act as though I'm an angel and I do everything perfectly. I think every owner has to make hard choices. And there are energy efficient design features that make a ton of sense and they're no brainers. There's some that really don't make any sense. And they're also no brainers not to do unless you're a personal homeowner and you just want it perfect. And then there's some that are on the margin and those ones are really tough calls. And that one, there's pros and cons to it. I think for us, a lot of buildings, it, you want to market to a clientele and the public, there's a lot of people that would love to live in a green building, whatever that might mean and how that manifests versus not. And if they're very similar price, that could actually help you with occupancy again, boost your NOI at the end of the day. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Going back to something you said earlier on, I know you said you're syndicating some of these deals that you're doing. Are you a long-term hold investor? Is the plan to hold on to these properties for the foreseeable future? Or do you have a more targeted hold period with a disposition? We are very long-term, which makes us fairly unique. We work with investors of all ages, a lot of them are in their 40s to 60s because we're not promising a three-year flip turnaround or a five-year hold or that kind of thing. But the project we're building now is in an opportunity zone and we registered as a qualified opportunity zone fund. And there's huge federal incentives now for us to hold that for at least 10 years. And we're committed to doing that to benefit our investors' tax situations. But on year 10, we're not just going to automatically sell. We would sell if we think it's a good time in the market to sell and we can get a good price. But if we can't and we don't feel like it's a good time, we would hold on to it in cash flow until we felt it was the right time. And I'm completely honest with investors and in saying, I don't know how long of a hold this is. So only invest money that you don't need anytime soon. But we've been lucky to be able to do cash out refinances for a lot of properties that we acquired three, four, five years ago, because the market has done so well and actually get people their capital back much earlier than we had promised. So we always try to under promise over deliver, but I think being a long-term investor helps you do the right thing. If you're going to live somewhere and you got two options, one's a recent flip house and one a single homeowner for 40 years, which one is going to be of a higher quality that you really want to rent or live in? I might go with the homeowner one over the flip house. Some flippers do great work, but some are looking to shave every corner, cut every cost, et cetera. So when we develop and build with a long-term ownership and operational mindset, 
it's quite different and a lot more attention is paid to the design of each unit, the utilities, the operational efficiencies from a management perspective, because we want to save our operational side money too. Dave, speaking of saving money, are you still doing renovations of older housing stock or are you focused primarily on new construction right now? If you're going to do business in a place like Maine or maybe even in Cincinnati, you have to be willing to work with old housing stock. This is not Las Vegas or Austin where everything is new and shiny. New England, we manage properties that were built by Revolutionary War soldiers. We literally have that occupied and rented right now. So it's really a mix of older stock. And we're under contract on a really exciting project where it's an old hospital from the 1880s. It was built and then added on to three different times. So really great construction, very high quality, but it's being run on oil, entirely oil heat for a 100,000 square foot facility, which is spending over $100,000 a year on oil. To generate the same heat, the same BTUs, and to add in cooling with heat pumps, either traditional ones with condensers or a VRF system, we can cut the operating cost almost in half. We can be spending 50000 on electricity, give or take. These are ballpark numbers. And we can do something that's good for the environment. And it's just something that prior owners had never thought about because people get locked into one way of doing things. And they think, oh, I have to stay on propane. I have to stay on natural gas because that's what it's been before. And I like questioning that. And sometimes you do. I have one building that's 17,000 square feet and it pays eight grand a year to heat the entire thing with natural gas. That's insane. There's houses that spend more than that to heat themselves for the winter. So that's a super efficient building. It would cost probably 100000 or more to switch it over to heat pumps. And that's not a super high ROI building to convert over. But this hospital one is <laughs> very high ROI. So that's areas where when you look at energy efficiency, whether it's insulation or changing your operating systems for heating and cooling, you can generate way bigger ROI than fiddling with somebody's rent, which we also do and want to make sure we get market rents and save money and operate efficiently however we can. But if you can cut your heating and cooling costs, that's huge. That's often your biggest cost before taxes. Yeah, you were talking about older housing stock. We don't have anything in Cincinnati built by Revolutionary War veterans, but if Cincinnatians are being honest, our city peaked right after the Civil War, and a lot of our urban core was developed between the 1870s and the early 1900s. We're with you, brother. We're the same in Maine. <laughs> so I started an HVAC business a year ago. So a lot of this is very top of mind for me, but also as a landlord and a property manager myself here, looking at boiler heat in some of our apartment buildings and the conversions that some landlords do now and have done in the past, going from owner paid single gas meter boiler heat to some sort of electric heating for each of the apartments, which is tenant paid because the electricity is submetered. Yeah, I've seen some of those gas bills get massive when people are using boiler heat. The other reason for the transition, though, is that there are not as many boiler technicians nowadays as there were in the past. And so it's much harder to get those repairs done and more expensive now than it has been before. But we definitely feel that here too. Dave, I mentioned in your bio that you have a focus on refugee housing 
currently. I applaud you for that. It's incredible that you're doing it. I don't want to get into the why refugee housing, the question about why to house refugees, as much as I want to get into the question of making it a solid return on your investment, making it profitable. Can you speak to that? Tell us a little more about what you're doing with regards to refugee housing and how it is that you're making sure there's a solid return on investment for your capital and for the capital of your investors. Absolutely. That's a great and very fair and very important question because we're not operating a nonprofit. We're a for-profit company and that's critical. And to me, you have to do that to be sustainable, whether you're a non or for-profit. So it all happened probably about four years ago, Maine started receiving a big influx of refugees, mostly from Africa, and it filled up our local basketball stadium in Portland. The city used that as a temporary emergency shelter. And seeing the families with kids who had undergone great danger to get here, my heart went out to them and I wanted to help. I'm the child of immigrants from a couple generations back myself. So I just reached out to the city and said, if there's any way these people could ever pay rent or have it paid for them somehow, some way. I've got a unit that's getting vacant and I've got a place for a family or someone that could come. And the city reached back out to me and they said, actually, yeah, we'll pay the rent. <laughs> I was like, okay, great. And that's about as simple as it is in a lot of cases. And we've expanded that. We now have over a hundred immigrants from Afghanistan, Congo, Angola, all kinds of different places staying in different units. and. The way we get rent is a patchwork quilt. Some are paid by general assistance, which most cities I would assume have across the country. And that's ultimately federal funding that goes to states, that goes to town, and it's shared between the town and the state level, at least here in Maine. But it pays a pretty good market rent, if not above market rent, just depending on the circumstance. You know, you have to include utilities, which I usually don't like to do, because as you were saying before, anytime that you're paying the heat, in a cold climate for your tenants, I see open windows in February and it drives me crazy. But by and large, we are able to get rent paid primarily through general assistance. Then you have programs like Section 8. They've been here a little while, gotten their work permits. They could get Section 8. But frankly, most people that get their work permits, well, guess what they're getting? Cash. You know, They're getting money and they want nothing more than to work their butts off and pay rent in most cases. And like any other type of tenant, there's good and there's bad. We've had to part ways with refugee tenants and families who could not get with the program. And we've had ones that are the best people that we've ever had. So it's a mix. But the idea is that they transition fairly quickly from some kind of public assistance like general assistance to working on their own. And then we've got some that it's really tough. We have a dad with nine kids and they're all in school. They're not working. And that one dad is going to have a hard time paying because he's got a whole house a 2,000 square foot house that we're renting him. And I don't expect him to be able to get off assistance as quickly as some of the others. He's paying part of his rent and that's respectable. We've had people that have only been on assistance for a month or two before they were able to get work permits and go out and pay their own rent. But you're right. We need to treat them like regular tenants. We do a little more education because not everyone knows the kind of things that you would assume someone from a Western culture would know about how household appliances operate and that kind of thing. But by and large, it's very gratifying. It's very fulfilling. There are challenges that are different. Like you got to teach them not to flush diapers down a toilet because that may not be obvious <laughs> like you would think. But once you do, a lot of times these are tenants like any other 
And when you have guaranteed rent being paid in a lump sum with direct deposit from the government, there's a lot to be said for that, especially in hard times. We've been having a very strong economy and market in the past couple of years, but the musical chairs is going to end sometime. We're going to have a recession at some point. And that guaranteed rent, I think, will be very beneficial compared to market rate tenants that may struggle in, in hard times. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you looking to raise money from private investors to buy commercial real estate? Syndicationattorneys.com is here to guide you every step of the way. At syndicationattorneys.com, they do more so you can do more. They create real estate syndication and fund offering documents, but they also educate you on the ins and outs of raising private money, ensure your offerings comply with security laws, and help you structure fair deals with investors so everybody wins. With reasonable lump sum fees and over $2.75 billion in security offerings created, syndicationattorneys.com has the expertise you need. But that's not all. Syndicationattorneys.com also offers weekly attorney-led masterminds, networking, and strategy sessions through their pre-syndication consulting agreements. To learn more, visit syndicationattorneys.com today to get started. And this offer is not available to Florida residents. My familiarity with the struggle of refugees and other migrants coming to the United States is primarily with people coming here from Latin America. Being that I speak Spanish and I'm a property manager and a general contractor, I always have painting rehab projects going on. I work with a lot of Hispanic contractors, naturally hardworking. Some of them do quality work. Those are the ones that I hire. And there's no language barrier between us and less of a cultural barrier between us as well because I've actually lived in South America and served through the church, mission trips, things like that in Central America. I've never had to teach any of them how to use a toaster or a toilet, though. In the interest of time, I have one more question, Dave, and then we'll transition the conversation. Attempting an apples-to-apples comparison here between a market tenant and a subsidized refugee tenant, I want to give the first answer on your behalf just to make sure that my assumptions are correct, and if they're not, please correct me. But I want to make an apples-to-apples comparison here if possible. I'll answer this question too if you ask it back to me, but thinking as a landlord whose interest is in doing good work, but also operating for a profit, how are you building additional assurances into your model for the additional risk you are taking by taking on refugee tenants? People who need to acclimatize to the United States, not just to the climate, but also to the economy, to the workforce, to the language. There's a considerable amount of additional risk with regards to their ability to pay rent. Like you said, that single father with nine kids in a 2,000 square foot house. What additional assurances or policies or infrastructure are you putting in place to make sure that rent is getting paid? That's a great question. How are we making sure that refugee tenants don't create a high risk for us and that we do collect rent from them as we need to. We have a specialist on our management team who handles almost all of our refugee and asylum seeker tenants. She loves doing that. And I think as a leader, I want to connect people with what turns them on and makes them jump out of bed in the morning with their hair standing up, excited to go to work. 
So you don't want someone who sees it as a hassle and a drag and frustrating. You want someone who's really uplifted by the intercultural exchange and the experience of it. So we have a manager who works directly with those families and she knows they're social workers and she knows a lot of the people in the different nonprofits who can give them services. So we're connecting them with the food bank. We're connecting them with all kinds of different services, legal help, and that sort of thing to make sure that they're successful. And I think as a landlord for both residential and commercial tenants, there's nothing I want more than for my tenants to succeed in life and business because they use that to pay rent. So the more that we can be a provider of resources, not a doer of tasks, but a provider of resources and a connector to those resources, that's good. And then we're following up with social workers. Like if there's a problem, like they're cooking and making lots of smells and not using the ventilator fan or opening a window, we would connect with their social worker and work through them and let them do some of the management. That's the other cost-saving piece of it is that you have other resources helping you that can actually take on some of that educational and interaction load and save your staff time. And then I think the biggest thing is that when we have refugee asylum seeker tenants that are on GA or Section 8, that represents a lower risk than a market rate tenant. But would we put them in the same unit as a market rate tenant? Usually not. If you've got high-end class A nice units that you just spent 30 grand refurbishing, and then the same size unit that hasn't had a major aesthetic overhaul since 1994, obviously you would put the tenant who is not price sensitive, who's not paying their own rent into the 1994 unit, which as long as it's up to code, safe and clean, et cetera, is just as good to them as the one with granite countertops and brand new stainless appliances. So there's some thinking that has to go into what's appropriate, what makes sense. Some buildings we do as only refugee asylum seeker housing because it makes sense for them. Those are buildings that are configured in a logical way for that. And others, we might only have one family or no families in the building, just depending on what the units are like there. So yeah, it depends. It's not a one-size-fits-all operation. That makes a lot of sense. Dave, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Oh yeah, let's do it. Bring it on. What is the best ever book you recently read? All right, I'm going to cheat a little bit in two ways, Slocum, because I've got two books that I'm holding up, Extreme Ownership and Cradle to Cradle. And I read both of them several years ago, so my cards are on the table, but they're so phenomenal. I think as a landlord, as a leader in real estate, I really recommend you read these. More people have probably heard of Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink, Navy SEAL. And basically it teaches me to think of almost everything that happens as my fault in that how could I have circumvented that by thinking ahead, planning ahead, communicating better, being a better leader so that my team was not put in the situation that we just found ourselves. And that way of thinking, it's like the opposite of victim mentality. It's being ultra proactive and how you can head things off at the pass. And then Cradle to Cradle to me is a treatise on environmental and green building. And it really makes the case that we should move to a society and a world where everything is either purely recyclable or purely compostable. And this whole love affair that we have with toxic endocrine disrupting plastics and all that, hopefully future generations will look back on and be like, but wait, why didn't they use these other materials and invent and recycle things better? So it's being more efficient with the systems you have. And this is a book that inspired the largest carpet tile manufacturer company in the world, Anderson, to change their entire operation and save a ton of money and save a lot of water in the process. So there's a lot of 
surprisingly capitalistic business hard edge things and lessons you can learn from looking into sustainability and what ultimately means efficiency. It's operating more efficiently. Also, Cradle to Cradle by William McDonough and Michael Braungart is currently free on Audible. I just downloaded it. I'll have to put that on my list. Cool. Good deal. Dave, what is your best ever way to give back? I serve on the board of a nonprofit called Healthy Homeworks, which helps refugee and asylum seekers transition from renters to ownership. And as a broker, one of the most gratifying things I can do is help some of our refugee asylum seeker tenants who've been here a few years, who've worked, who've built up savings, gotten good credit to buy homes. We just helped a Rwandan refugee buy a three unit building and he'd only been here for two and a half years. So don't tell me the American dream's dead. He did that by the sweat of his brow. He came with a suitcase, but nothing else. And he's a homeowner. So helping teach people the skills they need to be successful as renters or owners is really important to me. I think the service like you in the ministry, that kind of giving back with my time, it's the hardest kind because time gets more and more valuable as you become a syndicator and a business owner. But being able to serve as a leader for organizations, doing good work, teaching people how to fish, that to me is just as important as obviously giving money. At the end of the day, just giving money to the organizations that can really make good use of it, that's key too. And I really believe both of those, giving time and giving money, are important to be happy. You can't take it with you. This is a one-way trip in life. And all the treasure that you've amassed at the end, which could be today or tomorrow, if a drunk driver gets you, it's not as fun as sharing it around a little bit with the people that need some help. Dave, on properties that you have acquired, deals that you've done, what is the biggest mistake you've made and the best ever lesson that resulted from it? Ooh, I spent $35,000 upgrading an oil boiler to natural gas, and then I converted the whole building to heat pumps. <laughs> so that was dumb. But hindsight is twenty twenty, And you know why I did it? Because I was told by a professional mechanical engineer that it wouldn't work on heat pumps and it couldn't be done. And there's a lot of people that are just stuck in a mindset that's 10 or 20 years behind the technology. And I'm sure you encounter that in HVAC too, where BTUs are BTUs and heat pumps can make them just like any other heat source. So I was just given bad advice basically. And when I realized that it was actually still going to be better for me to separate out again like you said having tenants be able to pay their own heating and cooling radically improves your operating margins noi that's a huge boost so even if it hurts to do that it's often worth it and in maine we have pretty good state incentives and rebates for heat pumps and now on a federal level 30 percent tax credit you can layer local state federal benefits on and be almost getting paid to do some of these things on that note Dave, what is your best ever advice? Mm. My best ever advice is to never stop learning, to be really curious, to ask a lot of questions, ask questions of people that you wouldn't assume are smarter or know more than you. And I ask contractors, what would you do here? If you own this building, how would you do this or that? And it doesn't always mean you got to do what they say, but a lot of times if you're just thinking that you know best and directing people left, right, and center and following a script that you think is perfect, you're gonna miss out on a lot of other knowledge and wisdom that people have. So trying to remain curious, both on a personal and professional level is something that I really focus on and I think it served me really well. I would not be where I am without just 
lots of learning and listening to this podcast. This is a great podcast for people to be tuning into on their commutes, doing chores. When I'm mowing the lawn, I've got you guys or, or something beneficial in my ear to teach me more that I can use because when you invest in yourself, that's the best kind of investment you can make. I and mean, I've made great investments in real estate and buildings, but investing in myself, my abilities to be a better communicator, a better leader, a better father, better husband, that's really better. <laughs> that's the best ever advice that I have. Last question, Dave, where can people get in touch with you? They can shoot me an email. My personal email is dave at holmanhomes.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. Our website is holmanhomes.com. I'd love to chat. Happy to hop on the phone with anyone that reaches out and see what you're up to. And we obviously welcome new passive investors. I'd love to meet people, get introduced and see if we can partner together. Those links are in the show notes. Dave, thank you. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gained value from this episode, please do subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend you know we can add value to through our conversation today. Thank you and have a best ever day. Thanks, Lucam. Take care. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so... Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.